commentary, preparedness, and pop culture. From Nashville, Tennessee, the home of Jack Daniels, I'm Chris, a gay Buddhist libertarian. On this podcast, we will explore today's issues, feature guests with incredible and unique stories. Welcome to Still Love You, Bro. Well, hello, listeners. We are uh, putting out this special episode. Uh, clearly, Jess wasn't in the intro. Uh, Jess is not with us today. We had a, a special guest come up, and um, Jess couldn't make it, so we are going to do a solo interview here. So uh, wish me luck. Today's guest actually falls under the unique category in the intro with quite a story. Uh, in the studio day, today, I have Joel, and I've known Joel for a few years if you remember the interview I did with David um, several months back, we learned you should know something about everything and everything about something. I don't think that's exactly what he said, but to paraphrase, this guest, I think, knows everything about everything. I've, uh, I've had a lot of conversations with him, and, and he has uh, had quite a unique story. Um, I've learned he's a master of all trades and has a unique background in electronics among other things. So we're going to welcome to the show today, Joel. Joel, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Chris, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming up. Tell me really quick about your background briefly, and then we'll just pull some things out and go. Sure, absolutely. So um, it's a very kind of uh, varied background. I started out uh, working in the family business for a while. Uh, did that with my parents until I uh, went away to university. Uh, when I was done with that, graduated and wound up in the uh, the electronics industry. Uh, very enlightening for me. Um, but when I was at university, I actually um, had some interesting opportunities to do some photography work. Um, I had worked with some rock bands, so that was kind of neat. Um, and then after that, obviously, got into a more respectable uh, profession. <laughs> and uh, yeah, started uh, out with my own uh, company, working in the uh, physical security space. I was fortunate enough to exit that business and start working for bigger manufacturers. So I wound up going from being the boss to being a little guy in a big company. So that was a, a really, really big uh, adjustment for me. Is that soothing, though, to know that you're, you're, the weight of the company doesn't fall on you? A thousand percent. Okay. Everyone says, why would you go from being the boss to being a little nothing? And if you've done it, you understand exactly why. So awesome. a wise man once told my father when he was running his business, you don't need to feed a thousand families. You need to feed your family. So... I kind of took that one forward after a while. That You know what? Remember that, listeners. We have so many great little nuggets come on our show like that. So that add that one to the list. I like that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow. Um, so security. Um, we, we've talked about security in the past, and we've talked about cybersecurity. Uh, but your background is more physical security. So we're talking cameras, access control, uh, things of that nature, right? Absolutely. So I've been around since kind of the what people would consider the beginning I remember my dad's factory when he put a system in, I was only 15. They could never get the thing to work. And what kills me now is now that I'm an adult, I know exactly what was wrong. And it was the three cent piece of wire that they forgot to put on. Nice. So, um, yeah, long story short, I started out in the industry when the cameras were first coming out. They were mostly black and white in color, full of tubes, um, very little electronics. Uh, it was going to a videotape and they used these manual switchers. As things got really advanced, we started going to time-lapse VCRs to digital recording. We got rid of those little multiplexers, which allowed a lot of cameras to be recorded for a longer period of time. Uh, but we were still using those kind of analog cameras that plugged in technology from 20 years before. And obviously now it's completely different with you hear a lot of AI and deep learning. And that's where we're at. And I've, I'm fascinated, other than, you know, we have the studio, I'm really fascinated over camera technology and just how it's changed um, and I've, it may have been you, we were, we were at my office and I've had some old piece of gear and you looked at mm -hmm. it and you're like, Hey, I had something to do with that. But we had, uh, I think one of the old black and white cameras with tubes, uh, it's still hanging at portion of my office and they've never taken it down. Just, I don't know why, but it's kind of cool to see it. I walk by this big old huge blue box with a small lens. But when I look back at it, it hasn't been that long ago since that was the technology. And I had, um, you know, friends that ran, gas stations. And that was the way it was done to a, to a VHS tape. And they were changing it out like every day. And I remember a time where they came out with, um, I guess it's long play tapes where they could record, you know, more uh -huh. time on it. And that was just the greatest thing ever. 
I remember it was cutting edge. We, um, I was fortunate enough to do the security for a large, um, famous uh, restaurant chain. They had about 700 locations at the time from the corporate. And one of the biggest things that we used to do was literally supply 31 VHS tapes to them pre-labeled so that the manager knew to change the tape every single day. Wow. And what was fascinating about that at the time, it was it was beautiful picture. I remember those systems going in and people first seeing it thinking, that is such a, you know, great picture for the security system. The reality is if you've ever seen, you know, footage on the news when they're looking for somebody robbed a gas station, you can always tell and they've still got old tape systems. Even now with digital systems, you can tell they've got an older digital system. Um, but so many of those were put in places for security and it was such horrible video. But at the time, that was brilliant because that was the first ever, I guess, recording of video, right? Uh, without a doubt, it, it's definitely evolved a long way. But uh, a, a quick secret or, or a nugget on that. So it's always best to kind of match the monitor you're watching it on with the resolution of the device you have. And that actually holds true to even home theater and stereo, right? So a lot of people think, hey, I'm going to go ahead and get like a 4K TV and then they don't have a 4K source. It's not going to look as good. So, you know, manage what you're going to watch with what you're going to feed it. And it'll always look great. Absolutely, we 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 do that with with streaming here. There's a lot of there's a lot that goes into getting resolution right, getting bit rates right. Um, certainly, a huge change from the old days where you plugged a piece of coax into a, a black and white monitor. Um, so, tell me about the evolution from those digital systems to uh, or the analog systems to digital. We're talking like digital video recorders, network video recorders. Um, you were involved in that. Tell us a little bit about you know that transition and what it changed with the world. Sure. I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel to Asia. I worked with a lot of the engineering teams um, before the technology became uh, commercialized and popular. And um, we did have a lot of trials and tribulations. We went back and forth trying to figure out how technology worked, how you could commercialize that technology. Um, and it started out with, with a requirement, right? So we had this scratchy video coming off of tapes. The tapes wore out. The heads broke. It was expensive. There had to be a better way, and computers were there. So we found ways to turn that, that optical information into you know zeros and ones. And by doing that, we said, great, that's first step. And then we tried to put that down on a hard drive. The problem with that is, as you already know, JPEG 2000s and JPEGs, huge files, right? And back then, hard drives were not terabytes. Hard drives were megabytes. Right. So, you know, nobody wants to spend $20,000 to store five days worth of video. So obviously, as it, it evolved, we found ways to make the video um, less data intensive and make the hard drive space better used. So we, we actually have the perfect storm here, right? So hard drives are getting cheaper, faster, more reliable, and the video quality is going up, but the size of the data that the video is, is creating is going down. Sure. And that's by good compression routines. Absolutely. And and I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the best way to explain compression, uh, video or otherwise, to our listeners, think about a document like the, the Declaration of Independence. And if you look through there and you count the amount of the word the, and you replace the word the with the number one. So now everywhere you've got, you know, three letters of T-H-E, it's now a one. So you save a little space. In, in a nutshell, is that the best way to to describe. Absolutely. It's substitution and compression, right? So where you have redundant information, you try to come up with a, a cipher, a code, um, replace information with something less consuming. And at that point, you start to gain space back, you gain throughput back. But remember, something has to, I said cipher, right? So something has to convert that one back to the. So this is where compute power comes into play. We went from, there's a couple of different names of codecs. People may have heard H.264, H.265. Um, those are common codecs that are used in broadcast TV and surveillance today. H.266 is now out. Um, the problem, I remember when we went from like an MPEG to an H.264 or 265, was that, yeah, the codec was really efficient, but required a huge computer to run it and generated a lot of heat and electrical draw. So the, the goals that we had were, how could we take all of that computing power make it more efficient in a smaller space and less costly. So, you know, is is I guess there's a limit to say that you can compress something, but using my my analogy, if you take all the, the these and change to a one, at some point, though, there's got to be a limit to how much you can compress this data, right? Because you, you can only substitute, you know, like type things. So, you know, where where's compression going to go when you when you can no longer really compress based off those algorithms? So you're you're absolutely correct, right? So that's what we call loss uh, loss ratio. 
So some compressions are what we call lossless or very low loss, and some are very lossy. Um, in audio, you see that a lot, right? So Spotify or some of the other platforms, when they first started out, you know, you heard music and it sounded like an AM radio almost, right? Now they've got Spotify Hi-Fi and, and it sounds like you're literally just sitting there. And they can do that for a couple of reasons. One, compression in general has gotten better. And two, we can now have the bandwidth available to do lossless transmission in a reasonable fashion. So although compression is important from retention and storage, from an audio streaming capability, compression now is actually starting to take a backseat to the ability of just transmitting high-quality audio and video. And people, and I come from um, you know a long history of audio files, and I, I love the the crisp, clear sound of audio. Uh, and that was lost, I feel like, for a long time because once you start compressing it and putting on small things like iPods, but I noticed people are really starting to take take notice of that now, and we're starting to see those lossless things, the high-def audio with those streaming platforms. I think what is also helping is the amount of bandwidth to get that data, you know, to your decoder quicker. Mm-hmm. But people notice that, and I've and and you know, with a with a, a lossy codec, for example, um, essentially that is where. Uh, think of it as it's throwing the music at it, and if it can't decipher encode, it skips that. So you may not hear either crisp audio or you know whatnot. I guess probably the user wouldn't really know except in quality. But a lossy codec is essentially just skipping bits that it can't reproduce or doesn't have the bandwidth for. Is that yeah, right? a little bit right? So it's it's actually the lossy codecs themselves are are purposely destroying information to save space. So it's kind of a trade-off. You know, audio has a frequency range. The human here typically is like 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. So 20 hertz is a low, deep bass. 20,000 hertz is a very high-pitched sound. The human voice, typically, I would say, I'm not an audio expert, but I would say it's probably like maybe 35, 37 hertz to like maybe 10 or 15 megahertz, right? Uh, Kilohertz. I say megahertz. Sorry, kilohertz. So um, anything within that range outside of that range, you could clip. So we may be generating something that's negative 20 to plus 20 right now, but we don't really need to be transmitting that because we're not going to hear any value in that. And that's when you can start to clip or compress the range that's that's controlled and transmitted. Once you get within that range of information that you and I are using, right, you're going to lose something. Some people say, that's okay. I don't need to hear a hi-fi bass thumping when I have somebody talking to me, right? So going up to maybe 40 hertz, or 45 hertz isn't so bad. So for instance, like a center channel speaker on a uh, hi-fi home theater, some of them go from 40 hertz to 20,000 kilohertz, you know, 20 kilohertz, or they go from 75 to 25, right? So you're like, well, that's a lot of loss. Well, we have other components for that, right? You'd have like a subwoofer or a tower speaker to handle that. And that's, that's basically how I would kind of explain compression a little bit. Perfect. And I think about that too, where, you know, your audio files who like deep bass, and if you start taking that low end, like, That's you me. know, yeah. out to save space, you are losing some of that bass. Yeah. So I'm in the process now of, of putting together my own home theater. And, um, you know, I, I don't have unlimited funds. So I too like to do bargain hunting. Um, my wife kind of laughs at me because I spend all my nights looking at speakers and specs and all that stuff. There's right? nothing wrong with that if you're listening. Absolutely not, right? Just until you buy, right? Then you get yelled at. <laughs> Shop all you want. <laughs> so, uh, but long story short, uh, you know, I'm starting to look first at spec and then of quality of, of the sound stage, which means how wide does the sound sound? You know, like with the two speakers, do I get good separation? Do I feel like I'm immersed in the sound? That kind of stuff. I remember um, growing up, the the big rage, and this was from Radio Shack, was, you know, the the stereo systems. And you had all this outboard stuff stacked up and huge speakers next to it. And that was the way you listened to music. And now it seems everybody's listening and consuming music on, you know, plug-in, battery-operated Bluetooth speakers that really, I don't think, give you that clean sound. And I had a friend who was, I guess, just gifted an old... Um, uh, we'll say legacy system here. It's a product of my youth. So when I start thinking about this, you know, this young guy I know is like, hey, I got this old antique, you know, legacy sound system. I'm like, oh, come on, man. But, I had that um, in college. <laughs> yeah. And so, you, you know, you drag the huge speakers in and you set up the the individual components, but it's such an amazing sound. It Kind of like vinyl. I'm a huge vinyl nut. The way it sounds to me is just, um, 
it's a little bit more exciting to listen to. I think because of the involvement of having to take a record out of, of a case and put it on something, you have a physical connection to it, right? Oh, I, I, I love that. So I still have in my vinyl collection what they called half-speed virgin vinyl master recordings. They were the precursors to um, the CD. So these are going early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And the big claim to fame on those is they recorded them at 17 and a half RPM. So when they sped them up, right, you were like at 33 or whatever that was, or 16 and a half RPM, I'm sorry. So it's like 33 RPM. And they threw the needles, uh, the the things that they used to, um, they weren't pressed. They were actually carved out. They threw those styluses out every hundred albums that they cut. Wow. So they have really nice nuances of the tones and everything. You lose all that with a CD. But, you know, I challenge anybody to grab a CD from the originals, and I still have mine from the early 80s when CDs first came out, and I swear to anybody, it's not the CD that lost the warmth. It's the recording studio in the 90s that lost the warmth. All the equipment that they ran it through, you lost all that that warmth from that technology. I, I've noticed that where I've kept every CD. Actually, back to the very first one I got, uh, PM Dawn was the first one. If anybody recognizes that, you're my age. Mm-hmm. Um but the the audio sound because a CD can can present audio from the lowest end of the spectrum to the highest no matter what. But I think it's the the, the type of music, like you said, the equipment that's recording on. Some have a warmer tone, some don't. Um, these days it's much more convenient. The studio is all digital, and you know we run our mixer off an iPad um, because it's more convenient. But at the the better studios that they record music that I've I've been to they really rave about their analog gear. And of course, these days, somebody's like, analog, that's so antique. But the sound has volume and depth that you just can't recreate. And so you're right. All of my older CDs, regardless of the type of music, it has such a better sound. And it has nothing to do, I guess, with the, the media, more so than the equipment that was used to lay that audio on it and record it. Without a doubt. You know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go with my background into the recording studio with some national artists that are out there. And um, some of their equipment, their prized possessions aren't these big fancy cars. They're not their jets, right? It's their analog guitars. It's their recording amps, their preamps that they use, the recording boards in one of the studios I went at. I think they even made a movie about one of the boards that came out um, of a very famous recording studio from the like 50s and 60s that went into this famous rock band's um, studio. So I got to see the board, but I would never touch it. Right. right. So, yeah. There was um there's a studio in Nashville that um they have a board that came out of Billy Corgan's studio. Wow. An old analog board and it's it's the centerpiece of that studio. But and I think they still record to analog tape. And of course people when you look at that these days, because the reality is if you're if you're a musician, you can record an album in your bedroom. Absolutely. The gear is out there, the sound quality is on par. But to have that studio with that with that older equipment with the processing power, it just it, it's completely a different sound. And I think, I think before after CDs came out, and then we started going to to digital music on iPods now streaming, people became less concerned about the quality. But I think now after hearing, you know what's out there for years, people are kind of coming full circle and, and really wanting the quality back. Yeah, you may notice that even for your Pro Tools or whatever, you know, mixing software or, or um, you know, studio software you may have, they actually sell plugins now that emulate the old analog tubes. And it cracks me up, right? I'm like, okay, great. It was it was great that you're all digital and now we're trying to emulate what we lost with the analog. It used to be, it was, it was an analog world trying to seem digital. Now it's a digital world trying to seem analog. To bring it back to the video, um, it's the, exactly the same point, right? So for years, the analog cameras, they had like what we call very low latency or the time it takes from when an activity happens to when you see it on the screen. When we got into the new digital cameras, inherently there has to be a delay, right? Because we're going from an inherently native analog signal, no matter what, to a digital signal. So there's going to be some delay in that compute. The problem is some companies kept up with the computing requirements. We talked about compression and the need for computing power to execute the compression. Well, as resolution went up and codecs changed, if you didn't keep up with processing power inside the chip, it's great that you had more information going in, but you can't get it out fast enough and things started to suffer, much the way that audio starts to suffer if you don't have the proper codec in place. So that's kind of, there is a relationship, whether it be audio or video, to the technology and how you get it to the person. Sure. And when we talk about the delay, we're talking about action happening in real time and, you know, one, two, three seconds even before that's reflected on on video. 
Without a doubt. And and the thing is, multiple things go into making that delay calculation, right? So we're talking at this point just about the camera chip itself. Then all of a sudden these are being transported over networks and, and I, you know, maybe internet or maybe not, right? And that can add further delay. So if if you're taking a one second delay at the camera level and you're adding some other network delays, they stack. You could be five, six, seven seconds down the road. Absolutely. And when you look at that too, we're talking milliseconds, but when you add milliseconds together, you're getting half seconds, one seconds and two seconds. And in some life safety situations that that's make or break, um, especially if you need to know exactly what's happening when it's happening. Yeah. You know, um, it, it, it's funny. Um, you mentioned I had done a lot of things. Well, when I exited the first time of the security industry, I had to get out of the industry for two years. I wound up in the computer industry and it's the worst thing. I mean, I remember as a kid, I worked at retail and I could never go to the mall again because that whole illusion is gone, right? Well, the same thing with the computer industry. You go to the store, you buy a computer and you just expect it to work. Well, never work in the computer industry or you're going to blow your mind. So you talk about tolerances and tolerance stacking. So a company makes a motherboard, another company makes the processor, another company makes the RAM, and another company makes this, that, and the other thing. The problem is, if it's not all made by one company, people push the tolerances. And the tolerances start to stack. So one company's like, well, I'm kind of within that tolerance. Well, the problem is when you put it all together in a box, it may or may not work. I remember there was a very famous three-lettered company that I had been working with, and um, we were working together with a part, and they had um, a problem using our product. And I know our product was fine, so you know me, I'm a little crazy when it comes to technology. I took the motherboard and put it under a microscope. And I noticed a lot of us, you know, you can hit control, alt, delete and reboot the computer. Yeah. I noticed when I was hitting control, alt, delete, the computer didn't reboot, right? So when I looked under the microscope, a very microscopic gap, they never completed the trace, I guess, on the drawing from the circuit that created that control, alt, delete. But we relied on that control, alt, delete to do something. Turned out they had to trash thousands of motherboards because they were defective. Holy crap. Yeah. Just so, from that one little microscopic. That's gap. it. That's it. So anyway. That's wow. Yeah. So, you know, talking about the camera industry, a lot of people are always calling me saying, what kind of system should I get for my house? And that's a very difficult question because everybody's situation is unique. And and one of the things, if you're shopping for a system right now, um, there's, there's, there's uh, you know, IP systems, there's power over Ethernet, there's analog, and people are still selling a lot of analog systems. And there's even some wireless cameras out there. Let's talk and kind of explain the differences and the nuances to our listeners who who may be shopping for a system to, to make sure that they get the right thing because all of them will work for you. There's various prices, you know, various challenges on install. So you have to pick the right one. So, you know, let's just kind of take them at the core. There's, there's wireless systems. I personally don't recommend wireless cameras to anyone. It's very convenient to install. But um, as somebody in this industry, I can tell you that it's also very easy to defeat with a $10 device off of the Internet. So if you're buying a security system, and let's say this, we're not talking about recreational systems where a farmer wants to put a camera in the backyard to watch his cow give birth. We're talking about somebody, if you're installing cameras at your house, you're doing it for security. And so you want to buy something that's going to be secure, and it's not a wireless system. So we're going to throw that out the window. So let's talk about the differences between going with a, 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 an analog system versus an IP system. So, you know, you, you caught me at the perfect moment and I'll tell you why, right? So, you know, I work for um, a large organization and I could have literally the best equipment in the entire world if I wanted it. And there's trade-offs with that. And my wife and I are now going back and forth because I'm literally looking at some of the commercially available consumer level stuff for my home. And let me go and kind of tell you why we'll go through it. So the first thing is they've got analog. You can buy this at, you know, your your average big box store um, or wholesale club, right? And we'll use, I see Lorex as a brand and I'm, we're not going to throw out a lot of brands or recommend them, but Lorex is a big one that I've seen locally um, in the big box stores. Sure. So a couple of things I, want, I, I, would, I would recommend. So they all nowadays, it's different than it was 10 years ago. Nowadays, most systems that you can buy in those stores and those big box like a Lorex, they give really good quality. They really do. So for the average person looking to put something in their house, four cameras, eight cameras, they have technology now that even though it's considered analog, it's actually running over a digital signal. They convert it, but it's proprietary. So you get ridiculous performance at a really good price. So you can get a 4K analog camera net, which never existed 10 years ago. 
and still get a system. I, I don't know what they're going for now, but I'm assuming like 1200 bucks or something for like a 4A camera system at a wholesale club. Sure. And one of the things we'll, we'll note, all of these have cables. The difference is the type of cable. Um, an analog system has typically BNC, which is a round connector. People associate that with analog IP. We're talking about Ethernet cable. Traditionally, the analog, the older cables... When people see that, they think low quality because we grew up with, what, 400-something lines resolution originally. Um, but but what, what you're saying, Joel, is right. Um, the, because of compression, because of new technology, they are basically have just made that a wire that they can transfer higher-quality video over. So don't necessarily discount an analog system when you see those BNC connectors in the box because you can have higher-quality video with those systems. Oh, without a doubt. And I'll go one step further because I'm a little older than you, right? So people don't realize... Ethernet networking started out on those big, thick cables, right? So those big, thick cables, there's a lot of copper in there. You can actually run, even today, there's adapters to run gigabit Ethernet over that copper. So don't be afraid of the type of cable. And if you've got an investment already in your home or you took over a home where there was a system previously, don't feel compelled to have to rip out the cable at all. Consider yourself lucky. There are ways to get any type of system on that existing cable. So with that said, I highly recommend that coax cable for the average user. Um, it's not expensive. You can find it typically at most stores. It pulls pretty easy if you can get in your attic and you know, if you're like me and just get in the attic, just throw some cable in there and, and you're good to go. Keep in mind, one of the drawbacks of running an analog system, it's possible to do power over coax, but it gets expensive and you have to buy equipment to do that. So you would have to run two cables. One cable for the video and one for the power. And most systems that you get out of the box like that actually come with a roll of uh, duplex cable where there's an analog and a power kind of in one. So if you get a system like that, you're going to have hopefully the power cable and the analog cable with. And Correct. I think a lot of people see both those connectors and think, well, maybe I should have gotten an IP system, but not necessarily because either way you go, you should be pulling a cable, not doing wireless. Even with wireless, though, I want to bring that back up. <clears throat> I had somebody ask me, about this wireless system they saw. It was fairly inexpensive, but and they wanted to put it all around the outside of the house. It sounded so easy because I don't have to get up and run all these cables. You have to plug it in. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, now you have, yeah, you don't have a cable, you got to run to a DVR, but you have to have power somewhere. So um, that's one of the things to think about. It's not truly fully wireless, but either way, if you're going to pull, you know, Ethernet or you're going to pull analog, you've got to get a cable there. So at this point, you're talking about, you know, if, if a house is new, would you put Ethernet or would you put coax for your cameras? And you've got those options now, obviously, with the video quality. In my last house, believe it or not, I actually ran coax. Um, and I could get up to 4K video on the, on the coax that I did run. Um, my new house, they wouldn't let me pre-run the cable. So now I'm kind of torn. Do I start crawling through the attic and drilling through my brand new house? Or do I go with something that's commercially available and wireless? So um, going from that analog to IP... Now you're starting to get a couple of different options available. Um, and I don't want to use brands, but the the big um, e-tailers, right? They all have their own branded type cameras uh, and home automation you know, systems. So really at that point, when you start to look at what is your goal personally, do you just want to watch the cameras? Do you want to have like a smart doorbell? Um, do you want to see video if your alarm goes off? You have to start asking yourself, what is it that I want to do with the system? If it's just look at video, if somebody messes with my stuff, go back and see who did it. That's easy. Just go get that analog system from Lorex or wherever, and, and you're done. And one of the things I do want to bring up, a lot of people think if they don't get the uh, the, the um, POE cameras, the IP cameras, that they can't view it over the internet, which is not correct because if you have an analog camera system, the DVR, everyone that I've ever seen now, you can plug into the internet and you can still view those cameras on the internet, even if they're sure. coax cameras. A lot of people get confused about that. Yeah, there's a web server built into that central unit. So the unit that's processing all the video that's coming in, it's taking that analog video and ultimately turning it into digital. Um, and once it's in that digital format, it can actually, there's a web server on there and it can transmit if you have connectivity to the internet it can transmit up there in a responsible way if you follow cybersecurity practices. A lot of people complain about, oh, this got hacked, that got hacked. In a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, it's solely because people were careless on how they deployed their technology. Now, there are some serious backdoors in some brands. I'm not going to get into all that today. Um, but at the end of the day, if you use reasonable practices for cybersecurity, and you understand going in that, hey, whatever I put a camera on, somebody may be looking at, and you're comfortable with that, then I recommend it. I wouldn't keep people from doing that. Absolutely. I think one of the other benefits too 
Um, and you have to think about how far you want to expand a system because most of these, these uh, kind of all-in-one, you know, box systems where you open it up and there's a DVR and there's cameras, they work with themselves. And so you can't bring another brand of camera in. Um, you know, some of them, when you move into the IP systems, you can. So you also have to think about the future. If you buy a four camera system now and you want to add four later, you know, have you bought a system that can do eight additional cameras? Are you still going to be able to buy that brand of camera to add to that system? Where when you get into the the Ethernet and the IP systems, they're a little bit more lenient with, you know, some outside cameras because of the standards that I've seen. But with, with your cameras being IP, your DVR is powering those cameras but you have some flexibility with putting those into home automation systems because the cameras are individual. So you really, like Joel said, you just take time to really figure out what you need and what you expect out of it. Right. So for me personally, you know me, I like toys. So it's all about going with a home automation platform. I've been playing with home automation for years. I used to use the SmartThings hub when it was still SmartThings, and now it's part of Samsung, which killed me because they just bricked my hub because they say I have to buy a new one. They went to Aquara. Aquara yeah. bought them, yep. I had a Samsung SmartThing 3, and it uh, and I've, I've moved on to um, uh, home, uh, not Home Assistant, um, Hubitat. Oh, the, um, you got to tell this, me about that. I will. Uh, but the SmartThings was just bought by Aquara, and what they did was funny is they – came out with the new version that's a car branded. It's the same hardware. It's a new number. And they've they've sunsetted the the old smart things one, which worked just fine before then, but that's how they do, right? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I've tried so desperately, even using my influence within companies I've worked for or companies that would listen to me and they still don't listen. I think ultimately if home automation is going to be successful, you need an easy um, user experience and it has to be uh, inclusive. I have yet to find a single, not from even today, not from a single manufacturer, a holistic app that I can go on and get everything. They say they do everything, but it's really kind of clunky and it doesn't give you that one experience. Um, I'm fortunate enough to work at a company now. I'm not going to get into that, but it's not home automation. But I think for the commercial space, they are being very um, aware of that and they're trying to do that for the commercial space. I just wish somebody would do that for the home space. With that said, me personally, are we allowed to mention brands at all? Or yeah, yeah, that, that. sure. If so you're I'm, comfortable, I'm looking at like a Google thing, right? Okay. So, so I like you know my friends on Alexa, right? And I'm on Google Assistant, right? It's just my best friend. He's this huge nerd, right? He's got like all this cybersecurity stuff in his house, and he loves the Amazon Alexa. And I'm like, yeah, I had four Alexa things, and I shut them off, and I stick with my Google Assistant. So for me personally, I'm looking at getting stuff that's Google Assistant um, compatible. With that said, even though I have access to all this beautiful surveillance equipment, I actually considered putting the Google cameras on my house. Kind of embarrassed to say that. Hopefully nobody can figure out who I am. Hey, if it works for you, though. Yeah, absolutely. And you you talked about hardwiring versus wireless. Um, in order for me to hardwire it, it would just mean me going in the attic and running some cable. But my wife would object to me drilling a hole through our brand new house. So... So I may actually have to go wireless. With the battery I, operated. Solar. Okay, yeah. So one of the things we didn't touch on is you talked about power. A lot of these companies are smarter now and realize nobody's punching holes. They want to put them on poles or whatever. And they're offering solar panels to drive these little cameras. And it's kind of neat because they work with the automation system and they also provide some basic video intelligence. So they'll know they're smart enough on those little cameras to know if it's a car or a person, somebody left you a package, that kind of thing. For the average homeowner, that's very powerful. It tells you what part of the video you need to look at without having to be a computer expert to drive that on the back end. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention the brand. I have a, I have cameras from a company called Wise, W-Y-Z-E. They make a battery-operated outdoor camera. I tried it for a little bit, and it's great if I actually had somebody um, knocking my mailbox um, on occasion so I, I could put the battery-operated camera out there. Usually got, depending on how much activity, you know, a week – up to a month or so on a charge. So if that's, you know, if that that's what you works, now you can add solar panels to them, like Joel said, you know, they will constantly charge. There's just a lot of flexibility in your system. And that's why you talked about, you know, smart home systems becoming holistic. And one of the things, and I've, I've been doing smart home things for a long time, and I've used just about everybody that makes a smart home hub. And one of the problems is they're, they do advertise a, a layer of simplicity because they're supposed to make your life simple. But they're not designed for the average smart home person to just 
get. Now, the basic simple routines, you put it in, you set it up, it looks beautiful in the app. You can add a lamp module. You can add a, you know, a, a light bulb and, and door sensors and stuff. But once you want to start doing smart things with those, because it's one thing to, you know, integrate a smart home hub with, with Google or Amazon and say, turn on my kitchen lights. But when you really think about a smart home, you want it to, you want to not have to tell it things. And so when you start wanting to automate, you know, I'm, I'm pulling up to my house, you should know this and you should do things. That's when you have to start knowing how to make code and write rules. And I think that's what turns the average homeowner off of having a smart home. So you have to find an integrator that can do that for you, which runs up. The, it's no longer a DIY solution. That's one of the biggest problems. I had a discussion with a guy at, at my office about, you know, well, he, he said, why doesn't, you know, one company just make everything and, you know, make it all work together. But think about the manufacturing that goes into that. It's one thing to have programmers to develop, you know, a smart home system and have a, have a language they communicate with. But then to turn around and have to have the ability to manufacture everything from sensors to water, you know, you can you can put sensors on anything now. And if, you know, is it closed, is it open? You can put them on propane tanks. Is there, is there you know, propane in the tank? The ability for one company to manufacture all that is just impossible. But that's the need for the ecosystem, right? With any company, whether it be commercial product or consumer product, a manufacturer needs to develop an ecosystem and use third parties to have expertise and make stuff compatible with the ecosystem. Um, you mentioned what we call presence detection, right? When I'm pulling up within an X feet of my house, I wanted to recognize that I'm home. The technology already exists. Your cell phone is there, can be used as a presence sensor. Some of these companies now are starting to sell presence tags. You've heard of the Apple Air Tags, yeah. right? Well, they're being abused for what they were designed for. They were designed basically for you within your you know realm to keep track of things and use them as presence detection. Unfortunately, they're being used for some nefarious things, and I don't want to get into that. Um, but you can, even SmartThings, I believe, now sells a presence sensor. Yep. And you can go into SmartThings and say, when I get within 50 feet of my house, I want you to turn on the lights and do things. Um, I remember um, for a company I worked for, I actually, well, I, I can't get into that, but um, I recognized an opportunity for technology to be used to automate things when you pulled up. And I had made that recommendation and they all laughed at me when I did it and they didn't pursue it. All I can tell you is another company pursued it and turned it into a billion dollar product line. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, my, my biggest problem is over time, I, I, I've got this weird, I don't want to say gift, but I have this weird knack of looking at something pragmatically and saying, oh, let's solve this problem. Let's make life easier. I have an interesting knowledge base of technology and simplicity of a problem I want to solve. And I try to apply the two. And then say, okay, do we have what we need or do we have to fill a gap? And if we have to fill a gap, who can I call on in my, my knowledge base to fill the gap for me? Um, and I share my ideas with people and they laugh at me. In three or four years, I kid you not, my family's known me my whole life. My brother offered me a very large sum of money to open up my own company because he knows I've, I've had these ideas and they're really good ideas that are very commercially viable, but nobody's ever acted on them. And when you work for a big company, even if you come up with an idea – you can't do it by yourself. You have to let them take it. Oh, yeah. So. That's that's crazy. I, I'll tell you a funny story about uh, smart home stuff. I uh, I changed from one platform. I, well, I changed from the Samsung. I was at, I was with a company called Vera at first, and I, I went to Vera. Samsung. Yeah. And um, and every, and I had some issues with some some door locks, and which is the whole purpose of my smart home is I wanted my deadbolts to be automated. But everything else was just kind of extra. But we had some issues, and I knew they were kind of going out, so I moved to Habitat, and and I read all the forms. I wanted to do it right, and of course, I had to you know unassociate every device. And I'm I'm the kind of guy where I've got every door on it, so I know if it's open or closed. You know, I've got motion detectors because I want to really truly build a smart home. So it took me quite some time to unassociate the devices mm. with, the, with the smart with Samsung when it worked. Them, yeah, and move them to Habitat. But and I worked on this for you know every afternoon for weeks and weeks and got everything put in, got everything set up, everything's communicating because these these things have a little a mesh. There's two technologies. There's Zigbee and there's Z-Wave. There's pros and cons of both, but both of them create a mesh. They talk to each other. Some of my devices are farther away, so I spent a lot of time tuning devices, getting stuff moved, position right, so that everything could talk clearly. So now, I was I was feeling good. Now I wanted to add the smartness to my mm -hmm. smart home. And my first rule was, you know, I want it to recognize when I come home and do things. 
Um, the thing about, you know, presence detection is it's not good enough just to say my cell phone is home. And, and the, you know, the Hubitat has an app uh, and it knows if you're there based off, you know, its location. But if, if the internet doesn't work or the GPS doesn't work, it's not there. So, you know, I typically like two or three points. Does my cell phone, and I use an app called Life360 to kind of track my family. Well, Life360 integrates into Habitat. So my first rule was if my cell phone in Life360 says I'm home or near my home, um, and if my phone is connected to my Wi-Fi, because if I'm in close enough Wi-Fi range, so it looks at my wireless network, it sees if my phone's there, then it looks at Life360, and it determines based on those, those two things, Chris is home. So what do I want it to do? I want it to open my gate. I wanted to count to 15 and I wanted to open my garage door and I wanted to turn on some lights. So I did all this automation. I got it set up, had to learn the, the mm-hmm. code of Hubitat. Is that MQTT? Uh, it's, yeah, very similar to that. They have a rule engine, but um, yeah, you, there's a lot of custom code, uh, Lua, Lua okay. code. Um, so the next day I, I pull up and I have it set to after four. So when I come home from work, it, you know, it knows. And, and I pull up and I wait. Mm-hmm. And my gate doesn't open. And my garage door doesn't open. But the light comes on. And yes. I have such a feeling of defeat at that moment. Like all the time I put in it. And it, it drove me nuts and I had to solve it. But that, you know, that is just one of the challenges of smart home where there's so many little intricate things that have to go into making those routines. Turns out it was a faulty controller and, you know, I was able to get that fixed. So now I'm, I'm excited because my gate opens for me. It's the little things in life, right? Um, but when it doesn't, you know, the first thing I think is, oh God, I'm, you know, I'm about to waste, you know, blow a whole weekend trying to troubleshoot that. Sure. That inherently I think is the problem with, with smart home systems. There's so many things that can break because there's so many integrated components. You got to really want a smart home to have a smart home. You know, it, it's funny you say that, right? So holiday time is important for the family and I've got a young child. So I tried to amaze my child with automation, right? So we put up the holiday lights. I put them all on these, um, you know, Zigbee controllers, um, and I've got them all within range and all set up. I've got my inflatable Star Wars guys, right? We've got the DB-8, we've got uh, a Stormtrooper, and we've got Darth Vader, and I'm waiting for that whole thing to come on, right? And and we wait for the magic hour, and one of the three uh, inflatables blows up, two of the five strands of lights come on, and I'm like, what am I, I'm this big failure in my kid's <laughs> eyes, right? Like I did everything I'm supposed to do, but not everything fires. And yes, that is the biggest bane of my existence. It's such a feeling of defeat, isn't, isn't it? it? It is. Oh, gosh. Wow. So we've really covered quite a bit, cameras, smart home. Um, what else can you tell us, uh, you know, about those industries? There's something really neat that your average person doesn't know about security cameras that, uh, and I know you've, uh, there's probably stuff you can't say because of NDAs, but, um, you know, wow us with some kind of weird, inter- interesting story about security cameras. Well, you know, I think going forward, there's always all this desire to see video and watch video, but I think in general, People are going to find in the future that seeing the video can be a little tedious and I'm not going to sit in front of a camera for an hour or two hours to actually watch that video unless you're in a commercial environment that requires that. So I think really people are going to start saying, what do I need to do to find the video I need to watch? So I think keep an eye out now for, you know, you're starting to see it now. I talked about some intelligence being put into even the consumer level cameras. I would think that would be the trend. Um, Less watching the video and more watching event driven video. So essentially, you're not going to watch the camera for something to go wrong. The camera will tell you when something's awry. Absolutely. That's the world we're moving to. And, and I think using that integrated platform, that home automation platform, you start to link cause and effect, right? So like you had mentioned really quick, you alluded to like water, you know, like a water valve and a flood detection. Okay, so great. Um, my, my flood valve triggered, but what's really telling me that my flood valve triggered? Well, maybe a message on my smartphone with a picture and the sump pump stopped and there's a problem or something and the electric went off. So I think that's really more useful. Like like I said, pragmatic, right? What do I really want to use the system for? I'm not using it to buy a bunch of equipment and watch it fire all over the place. I'm, I'm doing it to cause an, an effect. And I think that manufacturers are kind of onto that and they're trying in their own ways to find a way to make it simpler for everybody to use, simpler for everybody to install and cheaper in the long run. I think simpler to install is probably what's going to really, you know, pave the way. And one of the things, one of the other challenges, I think, I, I've I've seen some cameras that have a lot of AI, you know, to the point where we'll, we'll take the example of a water main breaking. You can buy smart home components that tell you, 
you know, there's water leaking and you can buy a valve that turns that off. But if either one of those single components fail, <laughs> you're flooding. So I think adding a camera, especially say a water treatment plant, you know, adding a camera to that mix that has AI to say, you know, 30 seconds ago, this was a pipe with no water. And now there's a, you know, an ocean going out the side. You've got a second layer. I think that AI is going to be important as, as complementary to, you know, physical monitoring controls and, and thinking to make that decision because a, a sensor that can detect water could go off for high humidity, but a sensor plus video or, you know, an AI camera saying that it appears to be water and the sensor saying I'm, you know, being touched by water mm-hmm. makes better decisions. Otherwise, you know, you're responding to an alarm, high humidity, you need to go check it. You, you waste a lot of time. So I think that AI and the cameras will really help validate and save a lot of time. You're not having to sit and monitor. You're not getting false alarms. It's two points of, of control. Is that where you think AI is going to go complementary to physical monitoring? Oh, without a doubt, right? So, you know, especially the larger the systems get, there's just no way to manage hundreds and thousands of cameras effectively, even with staff. You know, staff over time get tired, bored, distracted. Um, so there has to be a way to help the decision-making process. So I think it'll start, you know, in the military and government space, filter down to the commercial space, and then ultimately hit the consumer space. Um, and then it just becomes what it can do, how much it costs, and how easily is it accessible, right? So when you start at the top, you've got teams of engineers and smart guys, and they're running around and they're making stuff happen, right? And then you're like, oh, this is a great idea. Let's find a way to commercialize that and bring it into you know general population businesses that have decent budgets to do that. Well, that's great, but what about me, right? So I want to know if some some kids playing around my mailbox. Well, here's the biggest thing, right? Around um, in your area, you still have a mailbox. People don't realize this. The United States Post Office uh, created a new rule. Any home, I don't care if it's a $10 million house or you know a small little thing, they have gang mailboxes now like an apartment complex so that the post office has a central delivery point. So everybody has to go to a mailbox center. To so get like it. in a neighborhood. Absolutely, right? Oh, so wow. let's say you have a neighborhood of 500 people. There's 500 mailboxes sitting in a place for the postman to come to a place and just open them up and put the mail in. So the question is, now I don't know if somebody's messing with my mailbox. So to me, there is going to be eventually the need for solutions of how do I monitor things that are important to me that aren't necessarily within my immediate home? And I think that'll start to come into it. And I think the cellular networks are trying to pave that way with the new 5G, get more bandwidth and get better coverage. So these little devices now that may not be in the ecosphere of your local home, um, you know, or out of the range of your smart home can can live on the cellular network, but still operate with that. Absolutely. So a lot of the major carriers have what they call IoT or Internet of Things type accounts. You may look, I mean, I have um, Verizon, right? And you can go for Verizon on my plan, and for 10 bucks, they'll give me a SIM card to put in a non-phone cellular device, kind of an IoT device. Like, for example, uh, uh, one of the GPS monitoring things for your car. Absolutely. Or, your, uh, yeah, anything like that that's mobile, for sure. Correct, correct. And I and I have a GPS tracker for my kid, right? So, you know me, I got to know where my kid is. I'm, I'm always busy. So exactly that. So you've got other things. You've got maybe a camera. You've got you know a, a position tracker. You've got another device that could communicate with that wireless network outside of your home. And the wireless carriers identify that and, and recognize that ability to put that revenue in. So they're trying to accommodate that. And I've seen that for a long time, especially like senior senior alerting systems. Uh, if you have people that you know walk away, Alzheimer's patients. You know, they've I've seen fobs that have cellular connection that are using IoT accounts that just can constantly get to the internet. That's one of the, the, the challenges. We're, we're looking at that with one of the seniors in our life right now. You know, it's great. There's apps on their phones and there's a little button as long as their phone's on the internet. But what if they forget their phone and walk out and they're, you know, they're with outside the Wi-Fi range. So I think the development of 5G and the, the cellular, because quite frankly, everything is a radio network, whether it's my smart home hub, whether it's my Wi-Fi. Um, but cellular, if you think about it, that is the one network that's already there. It's already covering the United States, right? Um, so that's probably the future of connected devices. And I think that's why companies are rushing right now to get 5G so they can have that bandwidth to allow you to have every device you've got on it not affect people's phone calls. So what I think um, a lot of people don't realize, like, oh, they sunset 2G, you hear this on the news. Or they sunset 3G, you hear that on the news. The reason they're doing that is they're reallocating bandwidth. And what you need to understand real quick, I don't know how technical the listeners are, but about bandwidth is the lower the number, the further the signal will go, but the slower the signal can carry something. 
okay? The higher the number, the faster it can carry something, but the less distance it can go. With the 5G thing, you've heard like Verizon has millimeter wave. It's like literally Wi-Fi for outdoors, right? But it only has the range of Wi-Fi. Yeah. So you need towers everywhere. But when you connect to it, I was getting 1.8 gig, right? So that's that's pretty intense on my cell phone. What you're starting to find is by consolidating these bandwidths into contiguous pipes, which is what they're doing, they're reallocating the spectrum, they're clearing out. It's kind of like dusting off a sheet of paper or defragging your hard drive, right? right? So they're clearing off all the old clutter. They're reassigning contiguous blocks so that they can get both range and bandwidth through. So they have another thing. A lot of people didn't know what it was. It was called 5GE or 5G evolution. evolution. Yeah. And that made a lot of controversy because of one of the cell phone carriers. It did. It did. But a lot of companies do what's called bandwidth aggregation. A lot of people didn't realize it where the, the, the major carriers got together and said, hey, none of us have enough bandwidth to really make a difference, but we all have bandwidth. Why don't we work together, use that bandwidth in a coordinated way to give higher performance to everybody? Um, and now they've gone to that. Now they're going past that and getting their own spectrum that gives them the performance they want. One of the unique things about um, about those radio signals, you talk about higher frequencies, um, you're seeing these 5G deployments and they're having to put them so close. I think one of the reasons that that is not widely adopted is because if you put you know, that, that cellular carrier right there, you have to have a lot of bandwidth to it. Like you said, if you're getting a gig download on your phone, that's great if you're playing you know, Facebook, right? I mean, we're talking about what's, what I find funny is we're talking about how many, how many gigs can I get to my phone? What's the speed of my phone? But in essence, you're not really benefiting from that. If you're browsing Facebook all day, it doesn't make your phone call faster. It doesn't, you know, images may load, but if you look at your connection now, nobody's complaining about how fast their image loads on the phone, because if you're on a 30 or 40 meg connection, which most likely everybody is with LTE, it's not slow. So where are these people needing this bandwidth? It's not it's not your phone. It doesn't make your phone calls faster or better. Yes, you have, you know, fast download, but what they're doing is paving the way for all these new devices on it, streaming and things of that nature. But the issue is if you've got, you know, 100 phones operating on that cell phone getting a gig, that's 100 gig. So these carriers are having to put, you know, fiber to all these little sites that are so close together. So you're not going to have a huge deployment right now of this 5G, but it's certainly paving the way and probably takes a lot of the the you know the the connections off of the old LTE system in those big cities. No, you're absolutely correct. So a couple of things um, with that. One is it's absolutely fiber backhaul, without a doubt. And if you noticed, like the 5G millimeter wave started out in stadiums and all because they're leveraging that fiber infrastructure to deliver those experiences. But there's also another reason. It had not a lot to do with speed per se. That was a marketing thing. Think about this, right? I, I think you and I, um, during a, a big social event, a fair, I believe it was, bandwidth, right? You know, carrier rolls in a satellite truck to try to augment it. Why, right? You have 20, 30, 50,000 cell phones concentrated within a stadium. There's only so much each cell area or tower can handle with throughput. So how do I get those people off of that conventional cellular infrastructure, throw them on something like Wi-Fi? In this case, like I said, you know, 5G is like Wi-Fi in certain cases. Get them off of the traditional infrastructure and get them onto that fiber. It alleviates the bottlenecks. And I think that's where that's coming into play in these tightly knit areas. Get them off the traditional stuff. Get them onto a more ubiquitous entry point into that bandwidth. Wow, we, you know, I'm sitting here thinking we have really covered a lot of technology, and I, <laughs> and we have we have some listeners on both sides. We have some listeners we they've written to us that you know they they love technology, they want to hear about it, and and if you're not so technical, we hope that you've learned something from that. Um, if right. you have any questions, no, that that's exactly what this is for. You've you've got a cool story. Um, I, I appreciate your time coming up here today. I, I know our listeners will. Um, if you have any questions for Joel, email them to us. Uh, my email address is chris at stillloveyebro.com. Visit our website, stillloveyebro.com. I'll certainly pass those questions along to Joel. Um, any questions you may have about security, send them to me and I'll ask him. Maybe we'll have him back someday. But Joel, I really appreciate your time coming today. It's, it's been very informative. I hope our listeners have found it as well. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Still Love You, Bro. We will see you next week. 